0: Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen, and if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Cricket Raspit. Cricket is a curatorial assistant at the California Academy of Sciences specializing in marine mammals. She's also a passionate community scientist, a raptor bander, and a rescue and animal care volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center. An interest, or maybe it's an obsession, with colorful sea slugs of the Pacific Coast led her from the tide pools to the strange community of creatures that make floating docks their home. With a handful of like-minded explorers, she founded the Dock Fowlers Union to educate people about this unique ecosystem and document its inhabitants through photography and eye naturalist observations. To explain, dockfowling is a captivating hobby where one observes the amazing diversity of life that forms in ecosystems around floating docks. Think of it a bit like tide pooling. But with some distinct advantages that we discuss today, unique and colorful creatures can be readily seen, and these areas are ripe for personal and scientific discovery. Simply put, dock fouling can be both a crash course and a master's course in marine ecology. In this episode, we discuss what dock fouling is and the related concept of biofouling. We discuss some of Cricket's amazing finds in these floating dock biomes, the emergence of a dock fouling community, and how you too can easily observe some of these magnificent creatures next time you're near a floating dock. It turns out it's pretty easy to get started, no equipment necessary. But if you want to start taking photos, Cricket also offers some suggestions as well. In addition to that, Cricket provides a number of great resources to learn more, including some books, videos, and iNaturalist projects. And if you're really ready to get started today, it turns out it's Doctober, a special month-long bio blitz intending to document these communities on iNaturalist. You can find Cricket on Instagram at ChiliPossum possum, or the Doc Fowler's Union at Doc Fowler's Union. She also has an Instagram account called Glamour Slugs. And on iNaturalist, you can find her as Chili Possum. So without further delay, Cricket Raspit. Okay, Cricket, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time today.
1: Oh, yeah, thank you.
0: The topic today, I thought maybe we were breaking some new ground in the podcast world and talking about doc fowling. though you were just telling me maybe there's another one floating around out there somewhere. But nonetheless, this is a topic that doesn't get a lot of podcast exposure, so I'm really excited to talk to you today. Why don't we just jump right in? Can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up, how you got interested in nature, and how that turned into dock fowling and what that is? That's six (laughs) questions altogether.
1: All right, I'll try to field them. It's a long story there. So I grew up in Southern California in the suburbs. So there wasn't a lot of nature around, but I always had an interest in the outdoors and in wildlife. I remember when I was a really little kid, I used to cut pictures out of Ranger Rick magazine and I'd paste them in a book and then I'd copy out the encyclopedia entry. This is before Wikipedia and glue it in and make my own little field guide. So I always had an interest in nature. I loved getting outside. We live near the coast. So tide pooling was always a really fun thing. And I think it just grew from there. I, I lost my way a little bit in college and I studied something else. But when I moved back to California, I started to get really interested in the coastal ecosystems and tide pooling. And I just sort of found that I was coming back to my original love of nature.
0: So then you left California, you came back, refound this and helped me connect now to dock fouling specifically, what is it? And how did you become such an advocate for this hobby?
1: So this started, like I said, I had lived on the East Coast for a number of years and moved back to California near the coast. The California Academy of Sciences has a community science program where they survey the tide pools at Pillar Point. So I had gone out thinking it was a great way to learn from other people. And I discovered nudibranchs, which are these very colorful sea slugs. And I just got completely hooked. And would go out to the tide pools any chance I got. But the problem with the tide pools and tide pooling is it's very tide dependent. Sometimes the tides are in the middle of the night. Sometimes the weather isn't very good. Sometimes you have other things to do and can't get out. So while the tide pooling was wonderful, it was not something you could do anytime. So I discovered or I heard through some friends that you could find these nudibranchs on docks, the floating docks that you find in harbors. So, the first time I ever tried it, I was camping in Bodega Bay and there was a small boat launch across from the campsite. So, at night, I took out my headlamp and I went and I looked over the side of the docks and I found six species of nudibranchs within the first 20 minutes. And I was just completely hooked. So, the wonderful thing about dock fouling is it's something you can do anytime. You can do it at night, you can do it in the morning, you can do it any time of year. So, it's not seasonal, it's not tide dependent. And for someone with Scheduling difficulties. It can be really nice to be able to go at any time. So it's more like terrestrial activities that way, like birding, for example. And I guess I should probably say a little bit what dock fouling is. So dock fouling is a type of biofouling. So the more general term for these communities is biofouling. And this refers to the organisms that accumulate on submerged man-made objects. So buoys cables ships or floating docks dock fouling, more specifically are the ones that grow on the docks
0: when i saw the term it just was not processing in my head like what does this mean and finally the thing that made it make sense to me was i was thinking back to this old car i had where my spark plugs were getting fouled with oil like covered with oil and i was like oh foul that's getting covered with something so that's where the light bulb finally went off oh dock fouling that actually makes sense and then, yeah, right. I come to find there's this whole biofouling concept that exists. So do, do you see different communities on a dock compared to other structures that exist in the water?
1: Not necessarily on other structures, but it's definitely different than you'd find intertidally. And just to, to make a quick point, so the fouling part of it comes from the fact that it's, they're generally not wanted. It, it's something that accumulates and it has huge repercussions for industry. So for example, you can have these organisms growing on the bottom of ships, and you can imagine how much space you have on the hull of a big container ship, right? That's a lot of acreage. So when it gets covered with these organisms, it produces a lot of drag. So it can reduce the speed of these container ships by about 10%, and it can increase the fuel consumption by about 40%. So you can imagine with these big tankers how much of an economic impact that can have as well as an environmental impact, how much more fuel you're burning. So a lot of the research that's gone into the biofouling relates to industry in terms of how to prevent these organisms from accumulating or how to get rid of them once they're there. The community is generally the same anywhere you'd find floating structures. If it's something like a piling for a pier, it might be different down towards the bottom than it would be at the top. The the peculiar thing about the dock ecosystem so to speak is that the docks float so they go up and down with the tide which means you have a fairly static environment right the light exposure is fairly static the depth is always stays the same and because they're usually in harbors they're protected from wave action so you'll get an entirely different community of organisms than you would get for example in the tide pools where the animals are exposed to wave action and desiccation from being out in the sun when the tide recedes so you'll get All of these organisms that either can't survive in those conditions because they're too delicate or maybe they're generally creatures that would be a little farther out in the ocean where they don't need to deal with the conditions in tide pools. So it's entirely different, which is what's really amazing is because a lot of these creatures that you'll see there, you might only be able to see if you dive. And even then, there are some creatures that you really only find in this environment and you don't see in the tide pools or you don't see when you're diving. So we can get into that a little bit, like the the actual constituency of the, or constitution of the communities, if you want to.
0: I'm a, what would the right word be? Novice isn't even the right word. I would be ignorant uh, of this entire scene. So uh, I'll probably ask a few stupid questions. When you were talking about the impact to container ships, the thing that I think is sort of the stereotypical or maybe most well-known type of biofouling would be barnacles getting attached.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And my knowledge of barnacles is like once they're there, they stick around and they, they don't really mm-hmm. move. And when you're looking at these communities on the docks, do they tend to be pretty static or is there some mobility? Like the docks rise and lower with the tides. So you have consistency. But do the animals themselves right. move around within that community?
1: They certainly do. And it very much depends on the particular conditions. So where the dock is, what the water t- temperature is. What the salinity is, how much light it gets, is it, you know, shaded under a pier or is it out in the open? Is it subjected to tidal currents or a little bit of wave action? While dock fouling refers to these communities in general, they can be specifically very different. So you'll find some that are mostly mussels. So you'll have attached mussels and then the organisms that live within and among them, or you'll have barnacles, or there can be some where it's all soft creatures, lots of tunicates and bryozoans. But those are the bedrock of the dock fouling landscape. They support a huge biotic community. So there's all kinds of worms and shrimp and fish and nudibranchs and just any kind of marine creature you can think of. And they're also, they can be very good nurseries for all of the larval organisms that float around in the sea. So all kinds of things can settle there, reproduce there. It's just a huge thriving community of organisms.
0: Most of my knowledge is just simply from looking at pictures that you've posted on your Instagram or on iNaturalist. And, and just a side note, some of them are just breathtaking. They're so colorful, especially the nudibranchs. But there yes. are other really fascinating creatures as well. And later on, maybe we can talk a little bit about how you capture such great photos of some of these things. It seems like there, there must be a special technique to get what you get. So I guess you've indirectly answered a few of the next questions I wanted to ask you about. And that was, why do it? and yeah, so it sounds like it's just always a novel experience, but what drives you to continue to go out and look at these communities and and discover?
1: That's a great question. It I love it because it always changes. So you never really know what to expect. And it's been a really wonderful education in sort of marine ecology because I started primarily because of my interest in nudibranchs. So if anyone doesn't know, nudibranchs are sea slugs and they can be hugely colorful. So there's all kinds of, there's pink ones and orange ones and purple ones, and they come in all these shapes and sizes, and they're very charismatic. And that's what I was interested in. So the nudibranchs are what brought me to the docks. But what's really interesting me now is all of the other organisms. So because of my interest in the nudibranchs, I started learning about bryozoans and hydroids that they eat. And then tunicates that are just always there. And, you know, sometimes I'll go to the docks and there aren't any slugs. So you look at something else and there's always something. So big anemones. and, And then you start to get interested in the relationships between the organisms. Why are they there? What are they eating? How are they interacting? Why is this a good environment for them? And there's seasonal changes. So depending on what time of year you go, you'll see different things depending on what settles from the larva, you'll see different things. It's just, it's just always surprising and it wasn't something. And again, when I started felling, I knew nothing about it. So it was all novel to me and it was just, it felt like discoveries because it wasn't something that a lot of people had done before. I mean, there are a lot of very good naturalists in this area, especially who's pioneered the way, but for me personally, I would just never seen anything like it but yeah, that's why I do it just because it's beautiful and it's interesting. And if you want to see weird creatures that you couldn't have ever imagined, it's a great place for that.
0: You know, you alluded to the fact that there's other knowledgeable people, especially in this area. How do you characterize the doc fouling community these days? Is it robust? Is it scattered? How do you all connect with each other and exchange and share knowledge?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. So I have a couple of mentors personally that kind of Gave me a lot of, or or laid the groundwork for how to do this. So there's a project on iNaturalist called Dot Fowling in California. And that was a great way to get a sense of what kind of organisms I might see or where to look. Because again, there's not a lot of people who do this. And then I have a friend. Robin Agarwal, who's the nudie queen of the North Coast. She knows everything about nudibranchs. And she had been to all of these sites and knew what to look for. So she was my big mentor in terms of dockfowling once I started to get into it. But the general foulers are usually marine ecology nerds some who or biology nerds. It's a step up from the general taking a hike and looking at pretty wildflowers, right? It, it's a little bit more of an investment. Um, because you're generally in harbors... And I should also mention that the way that you see these communities is you actually lay down on the dock. So a lot of these docks are not always clean. There could be fish guts or gull poop. And so you lay down on the dock and you look over the side. So right there, it's a little bit of a barrier to entry for some people. So you have to prostrate yourself. And there's a certain kind of person who wants to do that. (laughs) So I started dock fouling about a year ago, a little over a year ago. And I started posting a lot of photographs on Instagram. And I think it got a lot of people's attention just because the it was so unexpected and the organisms are so unusual. I had a lot of people asking me where I dive or are you diving to see this? And when I said I was just like, no, my feet weren't even wet. People <laughs> were absolutely shocked because they don't look like something that you can see. When you're dry, so I started posting a lot of photos, and I got a lot of questions about the organisms and how I was seeing them, and that kind of started, I think, a little bit of a dock fouling boom, so to speak. So I it started out with a friend I have, Luann Roberts, up in Seattle. So she asked for some advice and got started on her own and dock fouling up there, and has just seen. Amazing things, and there's even fewer people who do it up there than down here. She's been posting photos and educating people on the organisms that she sees, and then I have a couple of friends down in San Diego who started, and it's amazing. They see totally different things. It's just so we have a little bit of a mini boom. So we have people now from San Diego all the way up to Seattle, people in Maine, looking at these organisms from kind of from an aesthetic appreciation point of view, rather than strictly biological or strictly industrial, right? So I started on Instagram. I also have a little Instagram feed called the Doc Fowler's Union. So we have this sort of loose association of people that Doc Fowl- call the Doc Fowler's Union. And like I made little patches and we have a little hashtag. So it's just a way for all of us to share what we've seen together and maybe get the word out a little bit or educate people a little bit about the communities. So it's probably not more right now than a dozen people, but that's about a dozen more than there were a year ago.
0: I have to imagine it's going to grow by leaps and bounds because it's just such an interesting area of observation. And I'm thinking a little bit about how, for me personally, I've really gotten really big into galls and leaf miners (gasps) and on land, of course, but these are also overlooked organisms. But they're overlooked, but they serve as great hooks to get people interested because it is unexpected. It's surprising. And when you tell the the story behind these organisms and i see the same potential here with dock in raising awareness about marine ecosystems so i'm just right. I'm yeah, super Gauls, excited yeah. to have this discussion because it's <laughs> like it's you're on the forefront of something new in the naturalist community
1: yeah galls i think are a great comparison cuz i've been getting really into galls this spring too and it's the galls have such fantastic structures they remind me a lot of marine organisms and there is for example, an urchin gall that looks like a spiky pink sea urchin, but they're just, they're almost too beautiful for what they are. They they seem to be beautiful, more beautiful than they need to be. And that's what I find with a lot of, especially the nudibrings. They're just, they don't even see that well and they're just gorgeous. So yeah, there's these sort of hooks, like the galls are a little bit of the hooks. And I've had the same experience this year with galls, which is now I need to know my oaks. So it, it's spreading, it's networking out into this bigger knowledge of a whole ecosystem. It started because gulls are weird and cool. And then it spreads to a knowledge of oaks. And then you start to learn about the creatures that the oaks support. So yeah, it was a really good hook. And the nice thing about the docks as well is it's contained, right? So the drawback is you need access. Not everyone lives near a harbor and not everyone lives near a harbor that's accessible. Most of the docks are private. But if you do have access, you can go down and within... You know, a meter of dock, find hundreds of creatures, most of which you've never seen before. So there's this great sense of discovery.
0: Yeah, I need to do this for sure. And I was just thinking, like the first time I heard of dock fowling was during the iNaturalist city nature challenge. I saw this I saw a presentation by another prolific INAT contributor about dock fowling to help build up the species count for the city nature challenge. So it's certainly on my list and I'm gonna do it. But Aside from that, I, one thing that I was wondering about, so obviously the ecosystems in in the oceans and harbors are extremely diverse. Is there a potential for dock fouling in freshwater?
1: Not that I've seen. So I've never explored it myself, but I don't... There are definitely floating docks in freshwater, and you might find some sort of maybe bivalves and algae and stuff like that, but I, I don't think they have the same really diverse biomes in the in freshwater as they do as we do in the saltwater but again but i've never done it myself so maybe there's someone out there who needs to go look
0: (laughs) yeah another new frontier maybe unfortunately the the only thing i thought of when this question came into my mind was maybe it's a good practice to see if there's an invasive like a zebra mussel or something like that 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 is showing Mm -hmm. up but that's not as that doesn't sound as fun as finding these like colorful nudibranchs and you know everything else if anybody out there happens to have experience in, in looking at docks in freshwater and they they know otherwise please let me know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to know too. <laughs> the bay area is very interesting in terms of dock fouling because you get very different communities on the coast than you do in the bay. So there has been a lot of interest in some of the interior bay sites. So there's lots of people who there's a long-running invasive study of in Lake Merritt, for example, and so there's lots of people who have really intensively studied the organisms that show up in Lake Merritt and around there. There's certainly people who have been doing this and people who have been educating people about, about this. Yeah, Damon Ty has some really amazing presentations that you can see on YouTube about the creatures that you find in Lake Merritt. Lake Merritt is a really interesting example and in kind of, mm-hmm. in particular, it relates to dog fowling, but it's a very unusual environment.
0: It's funny how throughout the course of this podcast, certain themes come up again and again, and it seems like... So many people I know have ties to the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory. And then Lake Merritt is the other one. Everybody seems to have a tie to Lake Merritt one way or another. At least if you're in the Bay Area, those two things seem to hold true.
1: One of my very favorite dockfowling stories or narratives takes place in Lake Merritt. So Lake Merritt is a really interesting example because it is it's not a lake. It's tidally bound. So you'll get all of these crazy organisms coming in from all of the international shipping that goes on. So Oakland is a huge harbor, a huge place for international commerce. So they bring in all of these organisms that kind of hitchhike into the bay. And a lot of them show up in Lake Merritt. So it is an incredibly cosmopolitan collection of animals that show up there from all over the world. And you just never know. Something crazy can show up. And there is one nudibranch that lives in Lake Merritt called the Lake Merritt Kathona. So, a perca. And it's only known in California from that one spot in Lake Merritt. It has this very interesting cosmopolitan distribution. So it's been found in Ghana and Brazil and New Zealand, but no one actually knows where the parent population is from hmm. definitively. So it's this citizen of the world, but the only place you find it in California is Lake Merritt. And I love telling people that because people think Lake Merritt, it's urban, isn't it dirty? And that's why I love people like Damon Tai who are teaching people about all of the wonderful things you can find right there at your doorstep. And in a place like Lake Merritt, there is this fabulous organism and it's the only place here you can see it. And it's just, I think it's also a very hopeful message. All you have to do is look and you'll find something.
0: Yeah, certainly. That's one of the themes I think that I have in the show is that so many people, at least for me, is through my lens growing up. All this exotic wildlife was far away. It was on TV. It was not not accessible. And it turns out there's so much you can find in your own neighborhood park or in your yard or the lake that's up the road or whatever the case might be. So before we get into more about like how to actually do it, you mentioned you have to lay down on the dock and so forth. I'd like to learn a little bit more about what the day and the life of someone who is going to go out and dock foul, what that looks like. But... This uh, this interesting discovery in Lake Merritt has me wondering like what other sorts of interesting or bizarre or just funny discoveries have you had in in your time dock fouling
1: There's so many things a lot of it is just things that I never knew about before so learning all about creatures I've just never seen but you honestly never know what you're going to find My very favorite find on a dock was a sea angel So sea angels are these pelagic sea slugs and they look They have a little round head and what looks like little ears and these wings that they flap to swim. So it looks like they're flying. So they really do look like little angels. But these are a pelagic species, which means they're out at sea. You don't see them. This is not something you're going to see in the tide pools. I never thought I would see one in life. And it just passed right under the dock, right below me. I've seen bat rays hunting in the harbors, swimming, transparent sea cucumbers, squid, all kinds of fabulous worms. The worms are outrageous. I never really thought I'd be that interested in worms, but marine worms are ornate and just so there's so much variety. So it's things like that, just a worm that swims really strangely. It's not necessarily magnificent, but it's so interesting. And it's something I just never knew existed. That's, what, that's my favorite part about it is just these creatures that I never knew were there and just are going about their lives in these really strange and fabulous ways. So it's not necessarily something rare that I saw. It's just all of these crazy creatures.
0: Do you find that it is difficult to identify some of the creatures you see?
1: Yeah, it it can be. It definitely can be. Part of the problem is there's not a lot of people, or so non-professional people looking. So there's not this huge community of identifiers like there might be for birds. So you might have to search out some more professional sources. There are, I, I mentioned the dot fouling projects on, on iNaturalist. So those are a really good way to start on an ID. If you can either post them for iNaturalist or you can just look through the projects and they'll have a list of organisms that have been found. But part of the problem is because it's this artificial environment. The, it's like a weed lot, right? So it's this mix of native species and invasives and naturalized species some you can find in the tide pools, some you have to go to a more benthic environment to, to find. So it's just this mix of creatures from all different places. So there's not a really good sense. Like you can't go to a tide pooling field guide to look for them because they might be a Mediterranean species. And you're not going to find that in your Pacific coast. Feel guide. Mm-hmm. So iNaturalist is definitely the best way because there's been a collection of these organisms that are very particular to these environments. And there's also really amazing people on iNaturalist that will ID things for you. So there's a woman down at the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History, who will ID your worms, which can be exceedingly difficult to identify by yourself. So that's really wonderful. You can just post them and within a day, she'll be up there. There's another person who will identify your sponges. And again, because there's creatures from all over the world in these systems, it can be really hard to figure out what you have. And plus, a lot of them are very unfamiliar. Animals that look like flowers. And basically, there's animals that look like all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. There's animals that look like algae. There's animals that look like puffballs. There's animals that look like rubber. So- (laughs) A lot of it is just the unfamiliarity of all the variety of forms that animals can take. Once you start to get a sense of what you'll see, then it gets easier.
0: That makes a lot of sense because I'm thinking you drew a comparison to birding. And uh, birds, for the most part, there are obviously some transplants that exist on different continents. European starling in North America or whatever case example might be. But I have this impression that with all of the oceanic transport that's happening all the time that we're just constantly moving organisms around without even knowing it. So something could just pop up one day. Right. And unless you're looking underwater, <laughs> like you'd have no idea that it's <laughs> there. And that's exactly what you're doing is is looking at the water or underwater. The other thing I, I wanted to, just to, to clarify, because again, it, this is such a foreign thing for me, even though I live here in California, I have not spent nearly enough time on the coast, even tide pooling. I've only tide pooled a couple of times and it was just by myself without anyone knowledgeable. So I just sort of trying to figure it out on my own. So you're here now laying on the dock, looking over the side. And what I have visualized is there's some organisms that are literally biofouling, like they're attached to the dock, but then that also draws in a broader community swimming around through these associations that they may have. And it sounds like that's some of the other thing that you're doing, you're not just looking at what's attached, but you're looking at the water and seeing who else is in the vicinity. Is, is that accurate?? Hey, nature enthusiast, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are some sessile animals that form a substrate. So a lot of the rhizoans or the tunicates, the mussels, the barnacles that actually attach to the side of the docks. Those are generally the ones that cause the problems for ships that increased drag and things like that. But those create a substrate and a sort of three-dimensional environment for all of these other organisms to live. So either they provide shelter or they provide food. So a lot of the sea slugs, for example, the nudibranchs are predatory. So what they're doing is they're eating the creatures that settle on the docks. Wonderful hiding habitats for worms, all kinds of other things. And then that attracts crabs. So the crabs wander through and pick through things. Same with when you'll get big algal, you know, big when you have a lot of algae growing on the docks as well, that will bring in a whole different set of animals because that's lots of area to hide and feed. So yeah, so the basic substrate of the animals that attach themselves creates this environment for all of these other animals to live.
0: That then, it's allowing me to draw further conclusions as I think about, like, time of year water temperatures change the angle of the sun might actually hit underneath the dock more one time of the year than another and then thus the communities are constantly reacting to these changes in the environment
1: so there is a certain degree of seasonal change depending on the water temperature and the time of year how much light certain times like in the spring you'll get a lot of spawning so there's a lot of material in the water and the algae starts to grow over the summer, you'll get a lot more creatures in the algae. There are certain species like the lion's mane nudibranchs, for example, that live on the kelp blades. In the fall, in the winter, the kelp dies off and you'll get a lot less algae. So you'll get a whole different suite of species. There also tends to be blooms. So for reasons that aren't entirely apparent to me, you'll get a huge bloom of hydroids, for example. So they look feathery accumulations of these. They're cnidarians, so they're related to jellyfish. They... They have stinging cells in them, but they look like lacy flowers. And those are food for the nudibranchs. So you'll get this huge bloom of hydroids, and then you get a huge bloom of nudibranchs. And then when they exhaust the food source, they die off and leave these branching structures behind that will then get taken over by the skeleton shrimp or definitely one of the most charismatic members of the Dock fowling community. So you'll see these sort of successional stages that'll happen throughout the year so it's not necessarily dependent on the time but you do get these different so you might go down one week it's all covered with hydroids you go back the next neuter everywhere you go about the next week and they're all gone
0: yeah fascinating and for, for some of these different organisms that you're talking about i'll try to find some pictures that i can put in the show notes and if you have any that you're willing to share of course with credit i i would love to be able to point to a couple
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Some of them are just outrageous.
0: So let's talk about now, so you have a day off and you're going to go dock fouling. Tell me about how do you prepare? What gear do you need? What do you take with? What's your approach? Just walk me through a day in the life of a of a dock fouling expedition.
1: So the nice thing about it is you really don't need any gear. If you just want to go down to the dock and lay on the lay down and look over the side, you can see everything that I see. So without any special equipment. I do take a couple of things with me. I tend to to wear knee pads, because going up and down, it it can be hard on your knees. And also sometimes the wood is a little bit splintery. So I generally have knee pads and a headlamp. So if I go at night, I have a headlamp. And sometimes even if during the day, you know, we live here in Northern California, so it's often quite foggy. So the headlamp can help you with seeing, but that's really all you need. A camera, if you want to document what you see, but it's very minimal. And I'll go down, some days I'll go, if I'm going a little bit farther away, I'll spend all day dockfowling. If I go down to Morrow Bay, where there's a lot to see and a lot of space to cover, I'll go down and that's what I'm doing for the day. I live just a couple miles from Pillar Point Harbor, which is my home spot. And I'll go there after dinner for an hour. I'll take my headlamp down, poke around in, this, in the, the areas that I know are generally productive, and I'll just spend an hour looking and it's a nice break and then I'll come home. So it can be something that you do in really intensively for a long period of time, or it can just be something, you know, you're somewhere nice and there happens to be a floating dock and you just spend 10 minutes looking or half an hour looking. So that's the other nice thing. Like you can spend a lot of time or you can spend half an hour and see a ton of stuff.
0: You mentioned the camera. Are you taking a camera that can shoot underwater or are you taking pictures above the surface? I'm curious how you get underwater. some of the, Okay. Yeah. I mean, as I say, like some of these are, yeah. are just, let me just try to describe some of the photos. You're taking photos that show the organism often isolated, not always, depends, I think, but you know, and, and when they are isolated, the background is just like totally black. So it looks to me like you're using a flash or some sort of additional light and, and it is underwater then.
1: Yes. Yeah. So just in terms of orientation, the docks are usually about a foot Hot above the water so usually the organisms that you're seeing are about at arm's length so they're they're it's not right up next to your eyes so there is a little bit of distance so I photograph underwater usually with a flash because it's often on there at night but even during the day because the organisms are very small most of them are really small You need the flash to to illuminate them, even when it's bright and sunny outside. Although if it's bright and sunny, you could generally get away without a flash. But I just take little point-and-shoot cameras. So there's a couple of really good point-and-shoot cameras on the market. I use an older one called a Panasonic Lumix TS6. And it's a little tough camera that takes underwater photos, but happens to do a really good job with macro. And then I use an Olympus TG6 as well. And that one takes fabulous macro. You can get really sharp images of very small things. The wonderful thing about that camera, too, is it does terrestrial macro really well. And it has, for the camera nerds, it has built-in focus stacking and built-in focus bracketing. So the focus stacking is basically where it takes a number of different images and then combines them together into one image. So you don't get that shallow depth of field problem you get with macro. But yeah, I'm just using the Lumix cameras, I I like the older model and you can get them on eBay for $50. It's not a huge investment of equipment. And it's really, I would recommend anybody who does this, take a camera because some of them, some of the creatures are really hard to see with your naked eye. And you really get that detail when you look back at the photos. And for IDing things, it's almost essential that you have the camera because some of these creatures, you just, you can't really see them that well. Some are big and bright and showy, but a lot of the really cool things are very small. And that background you get, but because it's a two dimensional surface, you know, often there you can get really cool effects because the background, if you go during the day, it's usually a green color. So you can get them isolated against what almost looks like a green screen. And then at night, this great black backdrop. So they can look really dramatic. Unlike the tide pools where you get everything's very busy visually because there's rocks and things growing everywhere, you can get this sort of um, backdrop effect that's really cool.
0: These two cameras, are they both? natively waterproof or do you have to use a special case or anything like that?
1: Oh, no, they're both waterproof. Okay. Yeah. So they're built as tough cameras, right? So they're fully waterproof. The Olympus is a lot of divers like it. There's a few modifications that you might need to make to get really good photos or to optimize it for dock filing or for tide pooling. There's a, for example, a ring flashy attachment that mm-hmm. you can get that really makes a big difference. But both of them, like I said, with a few adjustments you might have to make. But they're pretty good out of the box, right? No special equipment needed apart from the ring flash for that. And if anyone's interested, I do have a friend who made a tutorial about how to adapt your camera for tide pooling specifically, which is really good because it can be frustrating when you go out and you don't get the pictures that you want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Later on, I'm going to ask you for more resources so I can link to all of them. So anyone listening can have a quick start guide for all the things they may be interested in. So Cricket, you mentioned earlier that some of these docks are private and you're also, if they aren't private, then you're in a public space and they can be dirty or splintery. So there's a couple sort of obvious safety and access questions, but can you tell me a little bit about the broader perspective of safety and ethics for dock fouling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important question when it comes to dock fouling because most docks are private. And the boats for a lot of these people are very serious investments, right? So they don't want people wandering around amongst their private boats. So you have to make absolutely sure that you're in a public space, that you're at a public dock and they are, there are, they are out there. There are places that you can access legally, but it's like birding ethics, right? If it's private property, don't go there without express permission.
0: Are they generally well-marked?
1: They're generally very well-marked and most private docks are gated off. So it's very difficult to stumble onto a private dock accidentally. They're usually gated, but just make absolutely sure you're in a place you're allowed to be because that can make it difficult for the rest of the people who are trying to do this. And as far as safety, there's a lot of tripping hazards, right? And you're near the water. There's a lot of ropes and equipment. So you just have to be really aware of your surroundings. And the docks are floating. So depending on how much wave movement there is, they can move quite a bit sometimes. So just be aware of that. If you get seasick, for example, just be aware that this might be a problem. Sometimes you don't even notice until you get off the dock and you feel like you you just got off a boat. So that's something to keep in mind. But generally, as long as you're aware of the private property problem, if you're polite and considerate, it's generally not a problem. And it's a pretty safe environment. I do take my son with me sometimes. He's six. You just have to be, because you're near the water, just be aware of those things. And as far as handling the organisms, the communities, because they live in this fairly static environment, can be extremely delicate. So because they're not subjected to a lot of water movement or, or anything like that, some of them are very loosely attached. So anytime you're pulling up a rope or manipulating things, just be really careful about touching the objects and pulling on them. Because a lot of the creatures, yeah, like I said, it's a delicate environment despite the fact that it's a weedlot, despite the fact that these organisms can attach, but just be careful. Also, the same thing with any wildlife. Don't handle it if you don't have to. The docks are usually not very deep. This is why I like a camera. If you need to get a closer look, use your camera because that's always going to be better for the organisms. It can be if you take something off the dock and then they don't successfully attach when you try to put them back, they can drift off to a place that's not good for them. So I would generally not handle the creatures. There's nothing that I know of that's dangerous. Some of the worms can be a little bit uncomfortable. They have bristly hairs that can get into your skin. But generally, there's not anything dangerous just for the safety of the creatures. Just don't handle them unless you have to. Sometimes when you see something that's just a little bit too far or (laughs) that's exceptionally beautiful or very rare, sometimes, for example, sometimes you'll find creatures that are on floating seaweed, for example. Like a lot of the, the nudibranchs will live inside these big masses of floating seaweed. So sometimes I will bring things Mm. closer. So if something's attached to kelp and the kelp is just out of arm's reach, I'll pull it in a little bit to see it, but I try not to disturb the organisms or or pick them up or or move them off the thing that they're feeding on. Because oftentimes they have very specific dietary requirements. And if you move them away from the food source, they're not going to be able to find it again. So I just try not, like I said, sometimes if they're on floating things, I'll move them closer, but I try not to do any more than that.
0: I'm also wondering about things like when you're looking in freshwater areas for salamanders or things like that, you can mistakenly disturb eggs, masses of eggs or, or things like that? Do you have similar considerations when you're looking or when you're dockfowling? Are there certain structures such as egg masses that you need to steer clear of?
1: For the most part, the egg masses, because these are marine organisms, they're generally attached fairly well. So a lot of times you'll see, for example, the nudibranch egg masses and they're actually glued onto the substrate. So either onto algae or the side of the dock so that's not really so much of a concern but a lot of the tunicates for example there's a, a really common organism in the fowling community it's called a mushroom tunicate so it has this structure like a mushroom and they'll attach onto basically anything they can the the dock itself or ropes or wires but they're extremely easy to dislodge So if you grab them or handle them roughly, they'll just fall right off. And it's not a rare organism, but it is an organism. It's an animal that's living and it's also a home for a lot of other organisms. So you don't want to, you could accidentally dislodge a whole clump. And some of that, like I said, some of them are very loosely attached to a very small thing. I've seen them on basically a fishing line, this whole accumulation of organisms on a fishing line. And you could, if you wanted to just take them all off with one swipe. So that's more the consideration is the organisms themselves Mm -hmm. and the way that they're attached.
0: Okay. So it's really been enlightening for me to learn about dock following from you today. I'm sure there are other resources though, that people could use to either learn about the aquatic communities that they might see on a dock or dock following itself. Uh, Do you have any recommendations, books, tutorials, webinars, whatever?
1: Yeah, sure. So the best resource by far is the doc fouling projects on iNaturalist. So there's a dock fouling in California, and then there's a dock fouling in Washington state. So that's a really great collection of both examples of the organisms you'll see and also people you can contact. So a lot of the people that are making those observations are people that you can contact if you find something, if you're looking for locations. The iNaturalist is, always a gr- is also a great place to look for locations. So if you look on the maps of the organisms, you'll see these concentrations where people are generally making observations. And those are usually places that have accessible, legally accessible docs. So that's a good source, both for ID and for research into how to get started. Mm-hmm. There's also on Instagram, I have an account called Doc Fowler's Union. So it's just a little small collection of photographs I've taken, photographs other people have taken, but it's a nice place to connect to other people who are doing this. So I found actually Instagram really helpful in terms of locating other people who are doing the same thing and getting help with IDs. So there might be someone who's, who posts something that I'm like, oh, that's what I've been trying to identify. Like you saw it too, and you can connect and talk about it. So it's a nice little community of people who are all doing the same thing. There's also, there are some books that are a little bit more technical. The Light and Smith Manual, has everything you might ever want to know about marine invertebrates it's a little bit of a tome it's a very big book so think of like the Jepson manual for plants or the pile guides for birds it's more technical but there's dichotomous keys for id'ing anything so if you want to do a deeper dive the light and smith manual is really great there's also a few kind of guidebooks there is one guidebook that has a whole chapter on fouling that I can give you the link for that if you want to put that in the resource page but just to reiterate iNaturalist is pretty much the go-to place for all of this. It's a, it's a great place to get started and to find people who can help you.
0: Great. Yeah. I'll have links for all of those that you mentioned. And I think one of the things that I enjoy doing with projects and in iNaturalist, in case it's not obvious, I like to just look and see what others are seeing and then maybe attempt to even right. identify a few. Focus on one or two taxa and start to learn that and, and follow a few see what the ids end up being and then hopefully start to contribute so that's that's a fun way at least from it's it's the armchair way (laughs) to get engaged in a community (laughs) it's
1: amazing how much you can learn that way also because because of the very peculiar character of these of the filing ecosystems there's for a lot of the organisms that you'll see there's really not a lot of observations So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're rare or even uncommon. They're just not very commonly seen. There's a couple of very nice things about that. One is that it's a great place to go to try and ID those rare things that you might see or the things that you just have no idea about. There's probably someone on it that's seen them. But it also means there's a lot of organisms that no one has ever seen. I had a couple of friends who were at a marina in Berkeley and found a nudibranch that no one knew what it was. It got sent to some of the experts at Cal Academy. No one could, no one knew for sure what this nudibranch was. It might be new to science or it might be a Mediterranean species that never that has never been seen before. A lot of these marine invertebrates are not terribly well studied. And because this is not a terribly well studied environment, you can make discoveries. You can find things that no one's seen before, or things that people very rarely see. And certainly people, dry people very rarely mm-hmm. see. So there's a huge potential to, to make important discoveries or to contribute important data to a place like iNaturalist for these rarely studied organisms.
0: Yeah, that's always a lot of fun when you discover that some observation that you submit is the first one for a region or maybe anywhere, at least for iNaturalist. So there's a few questions I like to ask a lot of my guests, and I get a lot of interesting responses. So if you don't mind, we can jump into some of those. Sure. If you could say snap your fingers and magically impart one ecological concept to help the general public see the world as you do, what would that be?
1: I think it would just be a sense of wonder that the world is more complex and surprising than you could ever imagine. So that's more on the part of the observer rather than an ecological concept, but to just be aware that the more you learn, the more surprised you'll be. And I think that really feeds into people's curiosity. There's this sense that things are known. There's so much out there that's unknown.
0: Absolutely. And through your engagement with the public, your kids, whoever, what have you found to be most effective in helping people move up a rung in the, you know, I I like to call it the ladder of environmental awareness.
1: I think, so I take a... A more macro view of things. I think what's been most effective for me in terms of trying to educate people about the environment and what's out there is seeing these creatures, just how bizarre and strange and complex they are and how interesting their life cycles. I feel like it's sort of like knowing a person as opposed to knowing a concept, right? You can have the concept of ecological awareness, but when you see this creature and it's something you've never seen before, I find that's really engaging. And that's why the photography has really been fun that way, because I can explain all day long about what I see in the doc filing community and why it's so interesting to me. But if you show someone a photograph of a skeleton shrimp, that's gonna catch them. That's gonna get them involved in a way that all of my descriptions never could. Mm-hmm. So I like to start from I like to start small and then work up. I, I find that works best. Know a thing first and then everything comes. It's like these cascades of knowledge that we were talking about like you get involved in nudibranchs and then you learn about marine invertebrates and then you learn about ecosystems you get interested in galls you learn about insects you learn about oaks and then you learn about the whole oak woodland so i find that bottom-up approach is really effective for me trying to educate people
0: yeah it's sort of like here's this crazy organism see this picture did you know you could go find one this afternoon if you wanted to
1: absolutely that's right here you found that here
0: exactly do you have any other projects or anything else that you'd like to highlight coming up?
1: This month, we are celebrating October. My friend Luann Roberts up in Seattle started an INET BioBlitz project called October to get people out for the month of October to see these creatures and to increase awareness about what a cool system it is, what kind of cool creatures you can see. So if anybody goes out to the docks in October, you can upload your observations to INAT and we'll go into the Doctober project. So if anybody wants to get a little bit more information, they can either look up the Doctober project on iNaturalist, or you can go to her website, which is called Nature Lookings. So that's naturelookings.com. And she has all the information. She also has little bingo PDFs that you can download and play along. So it's a bingo card with all kinds of marine invertebrates and dock fouling organisms. And you can play bingo along with everyone else who's celebrating Doctober. So it's a fun way to get involved if you want to try. And I have a couple of Instagram feeds, Chili Possum on Instagram and on INAT. So I'd love to connect with anybody on INAT or, or Instagram if they're interested. I also have the Doc Fowlers Union on Instagram, which is specifically doc fouling. And then I have a third account called Glamour Slugs. That's just new to So I, I have there's a lot of content on, on Instagram mostly.
0: Nice. I had somehow not discovered <laughs> glamour slugs. So I can't wait to look at that one.
1: Yeah, that's just glamour Slugs. of slugs. So if you just <laughs> it, 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 if you're just interested in nudibranchs, branks, you can go there and just see how cool they can be. And that's tide cooling and dock filing, but all new to all the time.
0: I have to say this conversation has been really fascinating and eye-opening. And it makes me want to get out and do this since I've never done it before. And this is like an entirely new area. So you have me at least initially hooked. And hopefully like (laughs) a year from now, I'll look back on this and say, wow, that was the start of a, a whole new area of discovery. So thank you for spending all this time today. I really do appreciate it.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was really fun.
0: Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know, did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Archive one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.